humanitarian. Watching American politics over the past four years has been mesmerizing. It's been hard to to disengage from the latest action of the, the Trump administration. And, and I think as humanitarians, we have obviously worried about how will this impact our work? How will it impact the, the most vulnerable populations on the ground? It's equally interesting to think about what comes next. How will the Biden administration move forward and, and how will that change current U.S. policy with respect to humanitarian affairs? That's the topic of today's conversation on True Humanitarian, where I speak with Jake Kurtzner, who is the interim director of the Humanitarian Agenda at the Center for Strategic International Studies, a Washington-based think tank. I hope you enjoy Jake's very fresh perspectives on, on what we can expect from the Americans the next four years and that you find the conversation useful. Jake Kurtzner, welcome to True Humanitarian. Thank you for having me. No, it's great to have you here. You, you are the interim director of the Humanitarian Agenda at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And now I suspect that that's an entity that's better known inside the Beltway rather than outside the Beltway, as you say over there. So just walk us through what is uh, CSIS, first of all. Uh, indeed, um, well known in Washington, CSIS is um, a nonpartisan think tank, uh, a research and policy institute that was formed in the 50s in the aftermath of World War II. Um, by two uh, retired defense officials who felt that the U.S. government needed um, institutions around uh, the government apparatus that were able to do thinking about policy, strategy, make recommendations to government without the um, constraints of day-to-day -day managing the government. So these two guys set up this, this institute, and as you mentioned, it's well known in Washington um, and I think it has a pretty good reputation globally, but primarily for national security um, and defense issues. Um, so Washington is literally crawling with think tanks, right? What, what's your brand? What's, what's your unique selling point over there? How do people see you? Yeah, it's, um, there's, there's a couple just within a one or two block radius here. Um, I, I think the brand has been historically this hard national security um, and defense program. Um, our international security program is about 50 people with a lot of different subsets. So, you know, budget analysts, nuclear, nuclear assessments, um, geostrategic competition. Um, and I think the brand has a lot to do with both um, immediate, you know, day-to-day -day impact analysis, what's happening in this corner of the world where we can use the various tools we have at our disposal to make um, snapshot analysis. And then also, um, longer term strategic thinking. And again, always designed with this policy recommendation element, right? This is not research for research's sake, but research to be able to hand things over and say, here's what we think um, is best way forward. And so that's, that's really clear, right? But what's not clear, and my obvious next question is, what does a former ICRC staff do being the interim director of the humanitarian agenda in a place that seems to deal with nukes? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think CSIS over the past 15 or 20 years, I think under the direction of our current president, um, has broadened the scope of its um, you know, soft power uh, programs. So there's a global health security program, which obviously the relevance has existed for a long time, but has become increasingly prominent um, in the past year. We have a project on prosperity and development um, that looks at you know, development issues. Uh, we had a global food security program. And then most recently, um, the humanitarian agenda was formed 
uh, a little over or close to three years ago. And I think the idea here is um, that national security and, and foreign policy um, needs to be about more than just um, you know tanks and deployments and, and points of confrontation, but we have to you know from the Washington perspective think about all the tools in the toolkit and and understand better uh, the ways in which um, humanitarian crises, human rights concerns, um, you know the failures and development gains, um, have a meaningful impact on the lives of those people and consequently have an impact on um, U.S. foreign policy and U.S. interests. And of course, it's, 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 such, a, it's such a political area, right? Because uh, as humanitarians, of course, we are terrified of, of becoming force multipliers for the, I mean, the national security agenda. I think that, that's, that's really, that, that, that ghost is always there, right? And so uh, how do you see your role? I mean, obviously, that's not you're not trying to turn us into force multipliers. What, what are you trying to do? You know, there's there's the humanitarian universe writ large. And then I think there's the Washington based humanitarian organizations. And I think one of the struggles that Washington or U.S. based NGOs have always had is finding the balance between um, in their advocacy and in their policy recommendations between humanitarian action for humanitarian purposes. Um, while making a political case that it has a, a benefit for the U.S. national interest, right? Um, it, you know, as a as a center, we don't take policy positions, right? What I write it is my view alone; it is not the view of CSIS. So, um, so finding that balance, you know, again, coming from the ICRC, where um, you know we we get ingrained from day one with concepts of neutrality, impartiality, and independence. And trying to explain that to you know my wonderful colleagues who are fellows here for one year from the different branches of the armed services um, is is complicated. Um, but I also think it's you know one of our value adds as a program is actually internally to CSIS. Um, so what I'm trying to do with this program is, um, in some ways, you know, in every situation we look at is make the argument that principles humanitarian action is has the best outcomes you know and and second order benefits to us interests are are nice to have but that the principled approach is going to have the best outcomes for for the totality of of the situation great but it's great to hear you still have that icsc tattoo that that i also have i think that's good yeah it's hard it's hard to shake So, um, Jake, we, we decided that today we wanted to talk about um, U.S. policy and how it will be uh, affected by the new administration, the Biden administration come in. But before we jump into that, maybe let's take a little bit of a look back and just give us, a, from your perspective, a really quick overview of what was uh, the U.S. humanitarian policy in your, in your book before the Trump administration? How has it been affected by these four years? And then we'll dig into what you think will come in the next four years. Yeah, I think um, having a clear-headed analysis of the past four years is very challenging for almost anyone on any side of the political spectrum. I think um, President Trump and, and the people, um, the senior people in his administration so radically changed um, the book, so to speak, of how things were done in Washington, that that being able to come up with a clear-headed analysis of just what the policies were is is very challenging. 
So what ends up happening is we have these rose-colored glasses of how things were under Obama, and and these uh, you know I don't even know what to call it colored glasses um, for the past four years. Um, but I think trying to drill down into the practical questions, right? I think the past four years challenged a lot of the ideas that we talked about in the previous question. Um, one, um, the concept of principled humanitarian action or humanitarian action separated from political agendas of an administration, right? It always happens. Every administration has challenges in terms of navigating the multiple um, threads they're pulling on a policy situation. So um, you talked about force multipliers. We heard that term in Afghanistan, right? When, um, you know, Secretary Powell talked about U.S. NGOs, you know, winning hearts and minds. But that didn't change with Obama, right? I mean, the, the USAID um, programs in Afghanistan were funded at the same levels and in many ways with the same purposes under, under General Petraeus and, his, and the counterinsurgency strategy. Um, what we saw in this particular administration was explicit politicization, right? What, I, and I, what I'm referring to is, for example, um, the USAID administrator showing up at the border between Venezuela and Colombia next to military type vehicles with food trucks and other and other equipment trucks saying, you know, these two things go hand in hand, right? Regime change comes, you know, brings rewards, or you will not receive US assistance if you don't, if you don't make a political transformation. That I think blew people's minds as, as an overt politicization of humanitarian action. We saw that in a few contexts. We saw it in the last weeks of the administration, right? Yemen um, is, you know, a, a, a human tragedy of a massive scale. Um, the situation in the north of Yemen, in areas under the control of Ansar al-Allah, the Houthis, is is extremely bad from from metrics of food security, civilian protection. And on the last day of the administration, they chose to um, apply a foreign terrorist organization designation which immediately impedes the ability of humanitarian actors to work. And you can have a debate on the merits of that designation, um, but the timing of it was so clearly designed to, um, to negatively impact policy decisions of the next administration. So those are two examples of the overt politicization. So this very symbolic way of, of literally taking, I think what we as humanitarians hold dearest, namely the, the idea that that it should be principled and that that all people who are in need deserve to, to or have a right to get assistance. That, you know, taking a, a sledgehammer to that, what does that mean for the Biden administration and the way you think they will move into the next four years? Well, I think the challenge for the Biden administration is going to be twofold. Um, a, a second, you know, when I think about the humanitarian you know, report card for an administration or an individual, we think about more than just how much humanitarian funding there was in the budget, or even the decisions about how it was spent, right? We also want to think about the humanitarian impact of the other policies. Um, so Vice President Pence, and you know, when he was leaving office said, this is the first administration to not start any new foreign wars, right? Well, I mean, maybe technically, but they did increase the number of drone strikes in Afghanistan by a substantial figure. So um, the, the reason I raise that is because 
the entire orientation of the previous administration, I mean, in their own words, was America first, right? Where they prioritized um, U.S. interests in a very, to me, in a very strange way um, that didn't think creatively and, and logically about, about the world. And so you had the politicization of humanitarian funding explicitly. You had the um, political orientation and the policies of America first um, also explicitly, but but speaking to the totality of our military apparatus overseas. Um, and there were some interesting things that they did that I think challenged people's um, assumptions, right? I think they, they were really committed to withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. They failed, but they were committed to that. And so, so pivoting now to the incoming administration, I think you, I would look at those same two sort of categories. One is how do they approach humanitarian action? And what are the humanitarian impacts of their overall policy agenda and portfolio and political orientation? And so far, you know, based both on what they've said since they individuals have been nominated or they've appeared in testimony, and based on what we know from the experience of many of the principals coming into government, I think we'll see real positive changes on both of those fronts. So if I could. But I mean, one obvious concern is, I mean, there's a fair, it's a fairly packed agenda the new administration has. There's a lot on, to, to put it mildly. Isn't this just going to get bottom of the, the list? Are they actually going to get around to doing this? It's a fair question, and I think it's a question we think about, you know, in Washington on the second point, right? How much funding will be available? How much political capital will be dedicated to this? Um, you know, when when you think about the pyramid of our political and policy structures, you know, President Biden himself will dedicate one hour a month you know, to thinking about explicitly humanitarian situation. But the apparatus is so large that you look at the principles, you know, beneath him in the org chart. And at various points in that pyramid, as you go down and down the chart, we're seeing people that we know, that we're comfortable with, that have that have reputations that that precede them from their work in the nonprofit or you know the nonprofit sector of previous tenures in government. Um, you know, every week or so, they've been announcing new um, hires for the administration at the you know at the bureaucrat levels of, of various degrees. And every week, there's this excitement of, you know, from this NGO or from that alliance or from you know someone who worked in the field. So we're seeing a lot of people that can do a lot of really good things at important levels. You're right that the question of, say, you know, the humanitarian um, operations in Chad and the Central African Republic will very unlikely are very unlikely to rise to the you know the resolute desk in the Oval Office. Um, but I think people like Samantha Power at the head of USAID, um, you know, Secretary Blinken, who who unprompted referenced the situation in Yemen. Um, National Security Advisor Sullivan, who wrote last year in Foreign Policy um, an article explaining his orientation towards um, national security challenges, all of them are bringing in that political orientation that I think a humanitarian community um, is much more comfortable with. And so the question I have is, how, how does that relate to 
the blatant provocation that we've seen over the past four years. Right? We we, we spoke about uh, about the force multiplier comment, which really still resonates today because it was it was such a shocking statement. And so, you know, people are not going to forget Venezuela. They're not going to forget what was done for in relation to Yemen in in the last days of the administration. Do, do you think that that the Biden administration will sort of do a is it going to be Obama 2.0, so high high level of path dependency, or are they, or, or do they see these past four years as, hey, we actually did some damage to, to the, to the core humanitarian narrative? We need to correct that, right? Is, is there going to be a shift there, or, or, or is it simply, we took a break in uh, four years of being principled with respect to humanitarian aid, so let's go back to to what we did before. So um, I think the Obama 2.0 narrative exists, and I think there's a there's a justification for it because um, many of the people who are coming into government now, you know, were people who had previously been in government. And there's a question of, are we just going back to that period? And and I would argue that building back better, which is Biden's, you know, catchy alliterative phrase is not sufficient, right? Everything wasn't great up until 2016. There were tons of problems in our little professional sector. There were, there were massive problems. And I'm, you know, talking on the USG side, problems with the US bureaucracy, how we fund, even you know, politicization, um, even if it was less overt. Um, so you know, there's, I was watching this um, very sappy but somehow incredible TV show called Ted Lasso about an American who goes to coach um, soccer or football in, in, in the UK. And he, he tells his players, you know, be like a goldfish, right? Goldfish doesn't remember that whatever happened. And I was thinking about that, um, about the people coming back, right? You know, Samantha Power should learn the lessons from the Syria and Libya experiences, but we can't dwell on them, right? Like we can't we can't worry about things that happened in the past. The USG is is too big to spend time harping on mistakes. You have to learn from them and make sure you go forward. But I also think that this would apply to partners, um, you know, non-governmental organizations, multilateral partners, right? There's, there's for sure a justification to be skeptical of the US government, right? The whiplash that we've seen from 2016 to 2017 and now 2020 to 2021 allows for people to maintain a certain level of skepticism about the direction of the government. That said, I would also, again, point to everything that's been said on the part of the principles about one, returning to multilateral organizations, right? One of Biden's first executive orders, if not the first, was returning to the table at the WHO. Saw Dr. Fauci speaking with, with Dr. Tedros immediately um, you know, on day one. You have Secretary Blinken saying, um, development's gonna be front and center and human rights is gonna be at the center of our American policy. Now, sure, you know, people can be very skeptical of what that means, um, but that is a, an entirely different framing of the policy orientation. And then again, I think with, with Ambassador Power, talking about someone who has brings a humanitarian and human rights mindset. And so, you know, I wouldn't, if I was an investor, I would remain cautious because the um, the day-to-day challenges and the political realities and, you know, the intelligence assessments, you know, will start to come to these people's desks. And I think you'll see, you'll see um, disappointment in the early days that that they're not moving fast enough on priority issues. But you know, one of Secretary Blinken's first acts was to review this terrorist designation for for the Houthis in Yemen, 
which I just don't see having happened so quickly in a previous period. I think that is almost a reaction, you know, to the to the highly cynical um, policy decisions of the previous administration. I think you're going to see a little bit more spine and backbone to to push back against those holdovers from the previous um, from the previous administration officials. Now, if we look at, for example, level of funding, do you think uh, there's been a lot of fears, and I think in the community that that the pandemic uh, would have a negative impact on on funding levels? And we've seen the UK cut, uh, not necessarily because of this, but I mean for a number of reasons, uh, cut down uh, their level of of, uh, of support. Uh, what do you see in the US? Are we going to see more or less the same, a significant increase? What What are we looking at? Yeah, um, it's an interesting question I was thinking about on my ride in, into the into work this morning. Um, humanitarian assistance has historically had uh, very strong bipartisan support, even in periods of, of you know high political dysfunction, which uh, we are in. I mean, this would I would describe our our current political dysfunction as extremely high, if not dangerous, on the scales of the you know an ACAPS metric of political instability. I think we would probably be pretty high on it. Um, but we've seen you know even even in periods of gridlock that humanitarian assistance has um, tends to have strong bipartisan support. So the question to me is, you know, is it's an open question of will, you know, congressional Republicans in the administration be able to find common ground on some of these humanitarian or, you know, sort of softer issues, even while being highly contentious on levels of spending, or will humanitarian funding become, you know, an unintended consequence of the the very you know overt disagreements about the levels of stimulus spending sort of collateral damage in yeah sense. exactly you know the uh, innocent bystander um so to speak uh last year we were i believe pleasantly surprised that funding wasn't cut dramatically and if and if anything it was it retained a, there was a, a fairly high level of humanitarian funding in the you know covid stimulus bills the, the challenges became some of the bureaucratic challenges of, of spending it, of getting it out the door and of getting it out the door in a principled way and, and you know, um, branding issues and what you could spend it on and all those all those kinds of questions. So I, I'm, I would say I'm a little bit skeptical that that we'll be able to um, maintain the funding levels, but you know, the US has always lagged, even as even as it's the elephant in the room in terms of overall dollar spending, we've always lagged in terms of the percentage of, of GDP going to international assistance compared to some of the peers in, in the UK, I mean, the EU and elsewhere. Um, I, I don't think it'll get cut dramatically, right? I mean, I think um, the administration has made clear that, that humanitarian and development is a priority. And I think at the end of the day, when you look at the numbers that they're talking about for the stimulus package of, of you know, the Biden administration's uh, domestic proposal is 1.9 trillion, the humanitarian piece of that functionally becomes a rounding error, right? Even when it's a huge um, input for um, um, humanitarian funding. What I think we have to be where where I think the Washington types and their partner, you know, the their colleagues in, the, in Geneva and in country need to be clever is, I, I fear we're going to start to hear expressions like do more with less, um, you know, which is not, it's not really a thing, right? You do less with less. But what, where we can actually have meaningful impact is 
can the less that we do be the part that's not, you know, um, uh, focused on alleviating human suffering, right? Can we can we have less bureaucracy? Can we have less paperwork? Can we have less grant writing and and you know and do reporting and monitoring and evaluation in a meaningful way, but not in a duplicative way, right? Can we fix the bureaucracy in such a way that even if funding is reduced, more money is coming out the door, you know, at the level of operations and is not getting captured at the level of overhead. And that's where I think we, we might have an opportunity in the next four years to um, to fix some of the of the process challenges, um, even in a constrained environment. If I had to summarize what I hear you saying, it's somehow muddling back better. Right? We, we sort of took a hit over the past four years, but we're sort of muddling back to where we were we more it's as a high level of path dependency in everything you say yeah i think muddling back better is, is about right look there's like a, a horrible expression in, in u.s politics of never waste the crisis right um and i think we're we're in that crisis right and that crisis has um you know incredible uh, exceptional human consequences um for victims of armed conflict, for people in living in natural disasters, for people, um, you know, at the bottom of the economic ladder around the world, right? You don't, the people who are suffering from the impact of COVID, it's not just in conflict zones, right? It's, it's people who struggled economically and are just getting hit because shops are closed, you know, imports, exports, all of it. So, um, but, you know, we have these three or four things happening at the same time. You got, you got COVID, you got political crises, You've got um, um, a meaningful discussion about localization and you know what that actually means in the sector. And, and so when I say, you know, don't waste this crisis, right? We saw a lot of international staff leaving and operations continuing to run, right? So what what lesson can we learn from this, right? In terms of what what does an effective operation require, you know? I, I pivot when I talk to different audiences, right? When I, sometimes when I'm international, you know, when I'm speaking to my colleagues overseas, I'm like, look, monitoring and evaluation and reporting is essential, right? The US, US Congress is, a, is the, you know, USAID is responsible for the taxpayer dollar, right? And, and we have to be, rec we have to recognize that, that this, this plays an important part of the, of the chain, but there's lessons to be learned from the past year that we can do things differently and I think you know capturing those lessons and implementing them will be part of that muddling back better. I think that's a that's a really interesting point. And I because I hear people saying stuff like, oh, we can't continue like we have, and this must be a pivotal year. And I just have this this deep skepticism toward I think gravity will set in. I, I, I'm afraid that we will get very close to where we were in, in a couple of years. I, I I don't know that this was a transformative year, and I think it should be. Yeah, I, I I I would retain your level of skepticism, right? You know, I think there's sort of like that's that's part of the ICRC slash the humanitarian um, world tattoo is right. Like you're just kind of skeptical of everything. Um, so I would retain that skepticism, and I think yeah, I think for the U.S. we will we will slowly go back to old ways of doing things, right? But again, given the amount of funding that the U.S. provides, given the the outstanding footprint. If we can start to fix on the margins, right, we can have real, real impact. So if it means um, 
you know, I, I'm not I'm not 100 sold on country-based pooled funds or you know pooled funding in general, but that is a different model than the way that they normally do, right? If the funding in, in individual countries goes from 50 million to 150 million, for the United States, that's that's a drop in the bucket relative to the overall levels of funding. But that would actually be a meaningful change in a humanitarian operation in an individual context. And again, that's a learning that's a learning opportunity. That's a testing opportunity. And so I, that's that's where I think we have opportunities um, to come out of this crisis. But I also think, um, you know, with that skepticism in mind, right, we should be thinking about a four-year trajectory, if not an eight-year trajectory, right? Um, there will be short-term gains and losses, but I think humanitarian, you know, policy practitioners, you know, with their colleagues around the world, um, should be thinking about change now. Uh, with a longer time horizon, because the U.S. apparatus moves very slowly. And, and so if we think about it sort of uh, geographically, do you, do you see a shift over those four years in terms of geographic focus? Is, is there going to be more of a focus on Latin America, Central America, Venezuela, uh, Colombia, that stuff? Or, or where is, is that even going to shift or what, what's going to happen there? I, I wouldn't think about it as a shift in and geographic focus, although, you know, there's there's the Rumsfeldian known knowns and, and known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And so I think there will be emergencies that we have not thought of. You know, we sort of look at the map and you think, well, we, we can see them all, um, but no, there's gonna be things that come up that we can't think of. I think more in terms of that four year trajectory um, in terms of like policy and process, right? Obama said that that as president, you know, your job, you're you're on the top of a very slow and large ship moving very, you know, moving like through through molasses in the night, right? And your job is to pick a spot on the horizon that's, you know, a slightly different trajectory and slowly, you know, turn the wheel. Um, and I think, you know, and then and then we had kind of a, a drunken captain for the last four years, right? And and so I think when I when I think about the next four years, I think what's that spot on the horizon? that people like Samantha Power and the heads of the PRM Bureau at the State Department and the heads of um, BHA at USAID are gonna look at so that in 2024 we're operating, the US government is operating as a humanitarian donor much better, right? And so I think you'll, you know, where where we as advocates are, I'm not an advocate, policy analysts, I think our value add is to say, where are the opportunities for change, right? So there's there's internal bureaucracy stuff that can be fixed. There's funding approaches that can be fixed. There's politicization questions that can be fixed. There's engagement with international institutions that can be fixed. There's these sectoral things, right? You know, we're five years past 2016's commitments, right? Which ones can we get to by 2024? And and I was thinking as you were talking, so so what you're not saying is the US is not going to say Oh man, we did some real damage to the idea of you know uh, principled humanitarian aid over the past four years, and the grand bargain is sort of we're seeing diminishing returns there. We need a new big reform initiative. You don't see that coming out being spearheaded by the U.S. Sort of a back to basics sort of a thing. I I try to avoid making predictions because then you can be identified when you were wrong. Although I will happily admit I'm wrong, as opposed to most of our pundit class in Washington. Um, I don't, my, I would be skeptical, skeptical of that kind of big pronouncement, at least in, in the early days, right? One is, I think it's, 
it's not a priority, right? You know, uh, Samantha Power as the head of USAID, like that will be her priority. Will be will be. So she may she may make a big speech in the next few weeks or months about USAID's direction. Um, but I I imagine part of that thinking back about the 2000 to 2000 or 2008 to 2016 experience will be, um, you know, did those big things work, right? And you know, what's the what's the lesson learned from that? And I you know I do think there's a little bit of getting our house in order that should happen before you know um, you know the 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 Fauci WHO example notwithstanding, I do think um, approaching our international partners, you know, at the UN agencies, um, diplomatically, um, in country, when we engage with host governments and host communities, I think um, a little humility is in order, right? And I do think that that lesson has been learned, um, both because some of those big ideas were have not really manifested and because of the last four years. Um, and so I don't see that, um, I don't see that as a priority to start with, but but perhaps in a year or two, if there is some success, um, riding the ship, um, you know, becoming more efficient, you know, being more consistent with good donorship principles, then maybe there will be that push to, to revisit some of that stuff and, and move it forward. Yeah, that makes sense. So sort of an introvert meddling back better to begin with and a careful uh, ask to be invited to the party again. Yeah, we've all gone back to parties like where we weren't necessarily the best behaved the last time we were there. So, you know, you 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 walk in the door differently, right? Yeah. Um, and but again, I like I, I think, you know, to me, you look at people's words, right? You know, as they enter office, you look at their words and you look at their history, and then as they start to take actions, we'll start to judge their actions, right? And again, I think, you know, um, the words so far, I think, have been very encouraging. Um, the history so far has been mostly encouraging, right? I try to be um, honest in my assessment of senior government figures, right? They will always disappoint um, because they are pulled by variables that we we have to we have to hold them to account, but we have to be rec- we have to recognize that that they have a lot of different things to play, but. Uh, one person I didn't mention is our new incoming ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas Greenfield, who, you know, right, we have someone at, at the UN level now who is an who is an Africa expert, right? I mean, she spent her career understanding these issues. And unfortunately, you know, there's there remains many primary, you know, priority humanitarian emergencies in the African continent from Nigeria to Somalia, Ethiopia right now. And and you can't discount the level of of importance that someone who knows those issues well, who has spent time at the AU, who has spent time at SADC, um, who has given you know has emphasized multilateral diplomatic endeavors. I mean, I think it's it's just a whole new approach as opposed to the previous U.S. ambassador, who is a you know a, a private sector person from from you know Kentucky. Um, there's just there's the world of difference in how we approach um, international issues. And and they will fail, right? There will be there will be moments of great disappointment for the humanitarian community, um, you know, because of circumstances and, and policies that we won't like. But I do think that starting with an approach of, of collaboration, cooperation, 
um, expressing value in multilateral diplomatic solutions, um, speaking the language of human rights, um, I think matters. So we've spoken a bit about how much capital or how much money will come from uh, from the U.S. in the next four years. And, and what I'm left wondering is how much political capital is the new administration willing to spend? I mean, we focus we focus a lot of assist on assistance in the humanitarian community, but we also have have a really strong protection agenda. And protection sometimes requires political capital. Is the new administration willing to spend that? Yeah, I think so, right? So we talked about funding. I think we'll see a status quo. We talked about fixing processes, and I think we'll see um, you know, a, a positive trend in that direction about how the U.S. is as a donor, both internally on our own side and, and engaging with our partners. But you're right. I think the, the question, some of the questions around protection um, become less about funding protection activities and more about um, how the U.S. approaches um, specifically context in which the U.S. is a party to the conflict or has a meaningful impact on the behavior of parties to the conflict. And this is another area where I think um, the president himself, who talked about sort of a return to dignity um, in the White House and an approach, um, again, that values uh, human rights and humanitarian orientation, and I think sub subcontracts these protection questions out to his heads of agencies. So the head of the so Secretary of Defense, um, who has a responsibility for civilian casualties for U.S. conduct in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and elsewhere. Uh, to the Department of State, which has um, the IHL, you know, is, is sort of the carrier of some of the IHL files um, to USAID in terms of some of their protection-related work. And that's where I do think um, we'll see changes in policy, right? So, so changes in, in, in U.S. policy that will have a humanitarian impact. So I think of a couple immediately offhand, right? So we talked about the Yemen designation, right? Immediately, um, that's one. Um, one of the, the problems or one of the challenges we faced with the previous administration was a very hostile orientation towards Palestine, right? Um, this administration, I think, will will look differently about humanitarian funding in Gaza um, and, and will be more willing to challenge and address some of the protection concerns um, for the civilian population in Gaza and the West Bank. Um, I think in Afghanistan, one of the, one of the protection-related activities that's been happening for a long time has been um, working with DOD to, to more effectively track and compensate for civilian casualties. And I think, you know, the, this administration says, the previous administration said they didn't get into any more new wars, but there was a substantial increase in the use of drones in Afghanistan. And I think those kinds of questions, the use of drones writ large, um, tracking civilian casualties specifically, compensating for them, putting in place, um, you know, measures to try to reduce the use of those weapons and the impact of them um, will be something that this administration will take very seriously um, based both on their, their words to date, but also the individuals that they have been, that have been brought in um, to Ambassador Powers' team, to Linda Thomas-Greenfield's team. You, you're bringing in people who, with expertise on um, civilian protection, with expertise on you know, uh, atrocity prevention. And that's where I think we can see faster policy changes that will have humanitarian impact. Jake, thank you so much for coming on True Humanitarian. It, it's been fascinating listening to you. Uh, you didn't want to call it predictions, but still, I mean, you did predict a little bit, and I am going to hold you accountable to those predictions. So thank you for doing that. 
and uh, I look forward to seeing whether you were right. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. And and, and um, you know, from the Washington perspective, I'm going to give you a, a shout. The work that ACAF's doing is is essential to what we're trying to do in DC. So um, we look forward to continuing to work. Thank you. It's about the rights and the freedom to be for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>